How many of you love that God? All right, that's pretty good for a Baptist audience. What about a Pentecostal audience? How many of you love this Lord? Amen, I love that song. It says, we will for endless days sing his praise. Endless days, that's forever. We're gonna join the seraphim and, the, and, and those that have been around the throne, the cherubim and seraphim that have been around the throne for eternity past, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, huh? We get to join them, amen? Amen, forever we will sing his praise. Forever we will sing his praise. Well, this morning, we're going to continue in the book of John, uh, chapter 18. We'll be speaking that in a few moments. But at this time, um, I want a dear brother, um, associate pastor, Matthew Nicosia, to join me on the stage. He has an announcement that he would like to make to all of you wonderful saints here at Valley Bible Church. Matthew? Greetings, family. Well, I've got something I want to share with you that I wish I could share around your dining tables over a cup of coffee or out to lunch or something like that, face-to-face. But there's so many of you that we love that I can't do that with each of you. So I'm going to share some news with you right now. And uh, because it's, it's a bit emotional for me, I'm going to have to read this with, uh, for you. So uh, we love you. And... Uh, I want to share this with you. Over the past several years, King David's words in Psalm 37 have been the fuel for the fires of my prayers to our Lord. Verses 3 through 7 have exhorted me to trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. In the intimate moments of silence and solitude with our Heavenly Father, I experience what I can only best describe as a stirring of my heart. In fact, both my wife Laura and I sensed this stirring both individually and together. Uh, We've asked many questions, we've waited, we've fasted, and we prayed, and we sought counsel from a few of those near to us whom are confident, love, and fear God with all their hearts. Through the process of evaluating this increasing stirring, Laura and I believed God was guiding my path to pursue being a lead pastor, teacher, and elder. This discovery was exciting and terrifying, joyful and painful, since we recognized that this would likely mean that the Lord was not only giving us more clarity about our direction in ministry, but it also meant that he was likely preparing to send us on a new adventure to minister away from our church home at Valley Bible. Over the past seven months, Laura and I have invited our sons, Judah and Benjamin, and our daughter, Alethea, to join us in prayer to seek God's wisdom for our next steps. After many moments around our table, reading the Bible, praying, having candid conversations, and shedding many tears, we opened our hearts and our hands to to submit ourselves to the plans of our Lord, wherever he may lead us. 
Jesus had this to say about prayer in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 8. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In January of this year, we began knocking to see if the Lord was opening a door for us to walk through. In our search, we discovered a church who had similar biblical convictions to Valley Bible and who had a DNA related to the kind of family community and love manifested in diversity that we enjoy in our church. I had been warned by some friends who had embarked on a similar journeys that the process to become a senior pastor at a church could be both lengthy and painful since it likely would require multiple no's before finally receiving a yes. But I, I wasn't searching for a job. I was seeking to answer the Lord's call. And after multiple interviews with just one church, yeah, just one church, and after a weekend spent candidating with that church and after much prayer and counsel, I've accepted the call to be the senior pastor and an elder at Fairfax Bible Church in Northern Virginia near Washington, D.C. The simplicity and clarity the Lord has given us at times has been startling. Jesus promised to answer us when we ask, seek, and knock, but our mustard seed sized faith often recoils when God actually does what we ask in His name. I mean, the nerve of God to actually answer our prayers, right? However, we're confident that the Lord has blown the door wide open to us after we've spent much time asking, seeking, and knocking to discover His wisdom and direction for us. So the Nicosia's last Sunday at Valley Bible Church will be May 1st. And my last day as associate pastor will be May 6th. The elders of Valley Bible Church, Pastor Larry and, and Pastor Tim Volstrom and Chuck Ladabodier and Edwin Chandra, Jeff Hoy and Randy Ostey, have been aware of, this, of the potential of this transition for our family and for our church since early February. These men, while we all feel sad at the idea of having to say goodbye. They've been extremely supportive and caring of us. I'm so thankful for their patience and grace with my family and me through this process. And I will be forever grateful for the opportunities they've given to me to assist them in shepherding Christ's flock, preaching his gospel, and being poured out for the sake of the mission of God's kingdom in our church community. Now, I'm sure this news may come as shocking, sad, and even disappointing. It's as difficult to deliver this news right now as it is to receive it. I love Valley Bible Church. Laura and our kids love Valley Bible Church. My mother, Nancy, who eventually will move to Fairfax, Virginia as well to be with us, she loves Valley Bible Church. It's where we found shelter when we were spiritual refugees. It's where Laura and I were married. In fact, Pastor Phil married us right there, right in front of the stage, right there. It's where we grew as disciples in Christ. It's where we've enjoyed some of our deepest and sweetest friendships. It's where we learned to serve and where we discovered our spiritual gifts. It's where our kids heard the gospel and were baptized. Valley Bible Church is our family. And as the Nicosias begin the process of replacing our current house with a new one, and as we look for new schools and marketplaces and restaurants and coffee shops and, and learn to shovel snow in the winter and discover the quickest routes to get around our new city, there's one thing that can never be replaced, and that's you. Our family at Valley Bible Church, 
We're adding a new family at Fairfax Bible Church, but you can never, never, ever be replaced in our hearts. Laura, Judah, Benjamin, Aletheia, Mom, and I recently read Acts 20, where Paul, on his voyage to Jerusalem, said goodbye to a group of people, the Ephesians, whom he loved so dearly. Since he didn't have much time to spend with them, they left the city and met at a nearby port town. He expressed his love for them, and they expressed theirs for him, since they didn't know if or when they would ever see each other again. Acts 20, verses 36 to 37, describes them praying, weeping, and embracing because of their love for one another. And after that encounter, Paul got in his ship and sailed away for Jerusalem in obedience to Christ. The Nicosias, we aren't gone yet. You'll have us around for another month, and we want to spend time with you. We mean that from the bottom of our hearts. Come see us. I'll get several more opportunities to preach from this pulpit and lead our small group, and Laura will still be ministering to our babies and their families for a little longer. Judah will still be in our young adults ministry, and Ben and Alethea will still be at youth ministry until it's time to go. But as May 1st approaches... Us with you, our church family, will pray, we'll hug each other, and I'm sure we'll shed some tears. And then the Nicosias will sail away. And while this is sad to consider, I, I also rejoice in it. For if there were no prayers, no embraces, no tears, and no sadness, it would mean there were no partnerships, no friendships, and no love between us these past 20 years. Our sadness reveals the depth of our love for one another. And that love, the love we've enjoyed at Valley Bible Church, makes all the tears and sadness worth it. We love you, family. We'll never cease praying for you. And since we're here this morning not to focus on any one of us, but to worship Jesus and hear from his word, I'd like to lead us in some prayer right now to express our thankfulness to our Father, to ask the Spirit to prepare our hearts to receive the message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ from the scriptures. Let's pray together. Father in heaven. We love you. We thank you so much that we could read from men and women who've gone before us. I think of Paul's words in Philippians chapter 3 that says, I count all things as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the greatest treasure we could ever hope for. And he's worth giving up all preference and convenience and comfort to go after him. And so, Father, we want to submit ourselves to you for the future of this church, for the future of the Nicosia family. We entrust ourselves to you, saying we forsake everything for the sake of following Jesus Christ. It's all worth it. He's our greatest treasure. And as we read about him now from the scriptures, I pray that you'd open up our eyes and hearts and ears that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. get to preach after that I'm uh, reminded of this passage it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer it is a fine work he desires to do amen that's First Timothy 3, verse 1, and I reminded Matthew, not that he needed to be reminded of that passage on Wednesday as we
as he expressed to our program staff and all staff that uh, he was his journey direction hasn't his direction doesn't really change but its place of where it will take place is changing and uh, it's been a privilege to work with Matthew and um, he will be greatly missed and so will Laura Laura we love you Um, I won't get into a lot of detail right now because I already have less time to preach this 50-minute sermon that I have. Um, and so uh, we, won't, we won't stay there, but we'll wait for May 1st. And uh, I'll let you know there'll be a luncheon after that May 1st uh, time. Uh, Matt's going to speak the Word of God to us on that particular day as he exits. And um, he's just changing addresses, guys. He's still serving the Lord, him and his wife. And I know enough about them to know that that's what they will do. Virginia will be a better place because they're there, all right? Um, I'll leave it at that. I'll start crying, and then this will be a total mess. So we'll just go from there to the Word of God. Uh, John 18, verse 28 through 40. I titled this sermon, Ignoring the Truth. Ignoring the Truth. Um, If you, I'll give you a moment to get there. Um, Last week, Pastor Tim started off the trial phase of uh, the Passion Week uh, where he was, uh, he spoke about the trial that the Jewish leaders uh, put Christ through and they came up with the verdict of uh, killing him. And so we begin in the civil trial, the first phase of the civil trial here. So here we have, here, let's read together. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the Praetorium and it was early And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice and Pilate said to him what is truth and when he had said this he went out again to the Jews and said to them I find no guilt in him but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews so they cried out again saying not this man but Barabbas Now, Barabbas was a robber. Heavenly Father, 
This is the word of the Lord. We thank you for the word of the Lord. We thank you for this passage. We thank you that Jesus was willing to go through crazy mock trials because he was fulfilling the will of his Father. Thank you for him. Thank you for his willingness to die on a cross on our behalf, his willingness to go through this craziness on our behalf. He always saw at the end the obedience to the Father and the results that we got are magnanimous. We say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Christ is facing, we look back a little bit last week, as Pastor Tim brought the word, he faced three different trials, uh, three different phases of trials from the Jewish leaders. And one was before Annas, the patriarchal uh, high priest who sent him and bound him back to Caiaphas, the, the current high priest. Caiaphas, and this, at the Sanhedrin, the, Jewish, the Sanhedrin would be the Jewish Supreme Court. That was a second phase of a trial. Then the third phase was back to Caiaphas early in the morning, for they had sentenced him the night before, and they were not allowed to do trials at night, as Tim pointed out last week. But they weren't allowed to do that, so now they meet early in the morning to announce or to go back and try and make it legitimate what they had come up with the night before. And so they're trying to legitimize or make it legal. And so back to Caiaphas, they have another meeting and uh, trying to make a legitimate uh, trial out of things. It was a mock trial. Christ had done nothing. But now the second three phases is where we're at this morning, the first phase of the second. So the fourth phase, first phase before the Gentile courts and the governor of Rome, Pontius Pilate. And that's where this narrative comes from that we just read. The six phases of the trial of Jesus were very dramatic. And they play out before the human personalities who are really the ones that are on trial when you think about it. They're really, Christ isn't really on trial here. They are. It's the rulers and the different players in this are the ones that really will come on trial. So they are all wicked, self-righteous, doing evil things in a, in, to the only one who was truly righteous. The only player in this whole court battle that we see, this whole phases, the only one that was truly righteous was Jesus Christ. He's the only one that was innocent. He's the only one that had the truth. And yet they chose uh, to lie and ignore the truth. Those in charge of all the trials had one thing in common. They all ignored the truth in order to fulfill the truth of how Jesus was to be killed. They didn't realize it at the time, probably. If they had, they wouldn't have done what they did. But I have three thoughts that I had. I went to the, this ignoring the truth and the, the way I looked at it was like this. Hate caused the Jewish leaders, this is the first point that I'll make, hate caused the Jewish leaders to ignore the truth. They hated Jesus Christ so much that they ignored the truth to see him crucified to see him killed. Why did they hate him? That will be answered in a moment. Let's take a look at verse 28, the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. When we look at that, it says that they went to the praetorium, which was a basically a Roman judgment hall. The Gentile Roman judgment hall is where they went. And they didn't go in, though. You notice in the passage that Pilate went out to them because they couldn't go in because they would be defiled they said right they said we're not allowed to go in there because we'll be defiled 
According to our laws, we can't be with the Gentiles in that place of judgment because that would be against the law. It would defile us, and we wouldn't be able to do Passover. And when you were defiled, it would take seven days to get rid of that defilement, so they would miss Passover completely, and that was a tradition of theirs. They didn't want to miss that. So they said, we just won't go in there. And then it's very interesting, as I studied this out, that wasn't even one of their laws, people. That was a form of a law from the Old Testament law. But it was another one of those ones that the Jewish leaders had added to. They weren't allowed to be around a corpse or a dead body. And so what was traditionally could happen in a Gentile setting is they would have aborted fetuses sometimes that they threw into a tank or a well near their house. So they said, we're not going to go in because that could be the present. That could be present, so that would defile us. So we won't go in. Very interesting stuff. Just one of those little things that you find when you study. But then he says, uh, he goes out to them instead of them coming into him. Now, you know, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, is a governor. And I, I thought it humorous when I looked at this. I he keeps going back and forth. He goes out to them, then he goes back into Jesus. And it, instead of them coming to him, which is how you normally would treat a governor, you would go to them, not have them come out and go back and forth. So that was kind of interesting. But then in verse 29, the trial actually begins. The civil trial of Jesus Christ starts there in verse 29. And it starts with the question, what accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate was already aware that they had already put him on trial in their courts and that they had already convicted him and that they wanted him to be killed. That was the verdict they came, the sentence that they came up with was he deserved to die. Okay? And so then you look at that. He's saying, what is the accusation? What got you to the point where you said he deserves to die? How did you get there? Who is he? What has he done Pilate probably understands that they don't have a whole lot against Jesus. He probably realizes they really don't have any, they don't have a leg to stand on in court, basically. But when you are in charge of the court and you hate someone so much, you can pretty much do whatever you want to. So the Jewish leadership, what, how do they, do they answer the question? No, because this is a real dig. Pilate had such problems with the Jewish people. They had created multiple problems for him in his early on days of being a ruler, being a governor. He had done some things that they just would not relent on, and he had to go backwards a little bit, which usurped his authority a bit. And that happened a couple different times in his reign as governor there. And so the relationship between him and the Jewish leaders, you might say at best, was very strained. Very strained. And so it's interesting that he chooses to say to them, after he already knows that they've got a sentence, he already knows he's been on trial with them, and what's he asked? What's the accusation you bring against this man? It's kind of a little bit of a dig to the Jewish leaders. He's saying, I'm not trusting you. I'm not willing to put this man to death until you prove to me he's done something wrong. And look how they respond. Kind of interesting. They deflect the question. They go right back at him with another dig. 
It's kind of like, we see you don't trust us. We see that you don't believe in us. We see that you don't care for us. What do they say? If this man was not an evildoer, would we have delivered him to you? And if this narrative would have kept going, Pilate would have said, well, I'm not really sure if you would have or wouldn't have. But they stop at that point. So Pilate said to him, take what he says to them. They don't actually don't stop. He actually goes back at him again. He goes, well, then if that's the case, then you take him and you kill him according to your law. And their response is, well, we can't, we're not allowed to kill anyone. Well, this is news. If you've been following John, they're not allowed to kill anyone. They've tried to kill Jesus at least twice before. What happened to that ruling then? Well, I'll tell you what happened to that ruling. In John 12, 32, let me read it to you. Because Jesus predicts his death there in chapter 12, verse 32. So the Jews, they couldn't have killed him. They weren't supposed to kill him. The Jewish leaders weren't supposed to. And this is why. Let's look at 32. And if, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. He's claiming, I'll be lifted up in death. And if you're not careful and don't read that in the right way, you'll think, well, yeah, he's going to be resurrected eventually. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, how I'm going to die. I'm going to be lifted up. You know, the punishment, if you were in the Jewish nation there and you blasphemed God, what was the punishment? The punishment was that you got thrown down and you were stoned. Okay? So that's how the Jewish nation would have eliminated Christ. They would have thrown him down and stoned him. But that wouldn't have fulfilled this prophecy, would it? When Christ says, I will be lifted up, well, how was he lifted up? He was nailed to a cross and they lifted him up. So the Jewish leaders, if they'd been paying attention, which they weren't, obviously, they would have said, let's stone him. That'll eliminate him from being Jesus. Because if he lied or tells something that doesn't come true, he can't be the son of God. But see, they were blinded by hate. They weren't thinking straight. They ignored the truths. Even in the narrative here, they ignored the truth that Christ was to die by being lifted up. And in that last section, he says, um, on, on this section of scriptures, so we are not permitted to put anyone to death, which was a total lie. But again, truth that doesn't matter in court, in this court, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke. So we aren't going to put him to death because we would cast him down and stone him. He needs to be lifted up. They don't know that. They're not acknowledging it. But it is signifying by what kind of death he was about to die because he spoke about how he would die. They could have eliminated Christ completely. Now, we understand the sovereignty of God. He wasn't going to allow that. But just think of it logically, their hatred toward Christ. Why did they hate him so much? Because he was about to shake up the entire religious world that they lived in. He already had, that's true. But he is going to say, oh, you, <laughs> you priests, we're not, these people are no, not going to any longer need you in the future. They don't need a high priest. They won't need to bring a lamb at Passover anymore. 
No, no, he was going to affect their economics. He was going to affect their job. Their, Their job security was about to go out the window. They hated him because he was going to change everything. They'd been studying his return for this particular thing. All of this stuff about Christ. They'd been studying it for over a thousand years and they missed the boat. They were blinded by their hate. They were blinded by the fact that their authority was going to be taken away by this man. They were afraid of him. The spotless lamb they were afraid of. And I put in here to be true to our overarching theme. If they only knew, if they only knew that, if the Jewish, Jewish leadership would have acknowledged acknowledge that and have, if they'd only known, if we changed that aspect, we could eliminate all of our problems. If we, and they had the right to do it. They're saying we don't have the right to kill anyone because that goes against Roman law. But Pilate had just given them permission to do so. There was not going to be any repercussions if they had done that. I'll go to section two, my second point. Pilate ignores the truth because it would benefit him to do so. He would remain in power. He would remain in the position of a governor. He would do all of those things by going ahead and following through and ignoring the truth. Following through with the sentence of death was really profitable for him. But there was a risk. There was a risk. Because if he doesn't kill him, the Jewish people are going to make a fuss. They've already made fusses to Caesar before. So if I don't do, if I don't carry out the judgment, I'm going to have trouble If I do carry out the judgment, I'm going to have trouble. It was possible both things could be true. And if he did it incorrectly, according to what Caesar would have desired, it could have not only cost him his governorship, it could cost him his life. As if you recall, in those particular times, it was nothing for a man to lose his head if he went against Caesar. So you say, well, how did he ignore the truth? Well, let's take a look. He starts off back in the praetorium, back into the judgment house, calls, summons Jesus back in, and he starts to question him. He starts the interrogation, the, the cross-examination, if you will, or the examination. And what's he say? He says, he, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And the you here is emphatic. It's emphatic. It's really said like this. You? It's said with disbelief. He says, you, you, you are the king of the Jews? Like, really, you're the king? You're here, in, you're here bound, brought here by them. Who treats a king this way? It's a disbelief that he asks it. You, you are the king of the Jews? And then what does Jesus do? He asks a question back. I love how Christ would answer a question with a question. He always put the other person on the defense. I don't like it when I ask people a question and they ask me a question back. Drives me crazy. I tell them, don't deflect from the question I asked you. But Christ did that. There was a reason for it. It wasn't just so he could 
could jumble Pilate up. He wasn't trying to do that. He's trying to find out why Pilate is asking him that question. And what's the, because there's a couple different ways he could ask that. Are you a king that's a king that I need to be concerned about who's trying to take over the throne of Rome? Is it, are you a political king? Are you, a, um, are, are you looking for a military offensive? Are you gonna do something to cause Rome trouble? So he asks that question, and Jesus says this. He says, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? In other words, are you just thinking that yourself, or did somebody warn you that I'm that kind of king? That's why he asked the question. And then Pilate's answer, now Pilate's getting a little testy at this point, I think. And there in verse, what is that, verse 35. He says, I am not a Jew, am I? Like, I'm not listening to them. Your own nation and the chief priest deliver you to me. What have you done? What have you done? He's tired. He's, he's fed up with this whole thing. Little does he know it's just getting started for him. But he's kind of just tired. What have you done? Why, are they, why have they got you here? Why do they want me to have you put to death? What have you done that's so bad that now you're telling me you're not? Now look what he answers. He tells him who he is and he tells him what he's done. And it's going to make Pilate rest easy, what he says. Listen up. He says this. Because now he answers the question. Before he asks a question, now he's got, the, he's got Pilate, now understands who he is. My, and this is what he says. Listen, listen. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would be not handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He's saying, I'm not that political guy. I've got a different agenda. My agenda's not here. I'm not of this world. My kingdom's not of this world. It belongs after this world. It's outside of the world. It's a whole other realm that you don't even, you're not even grasping. Pilate didn't get it. So what does Pilate land on? He lands on this. Well, if you have a kingdom, you're saying you're a king. Right? So he says that. He says, so you are a king. Like now he's even more amazed. Wait a minute. We've gone from you, you're a king, to now you are, you are a king. That's odd. So you are a king. And look how he answers it. You say correctly that I am a king. I am a king. Christ could not deny his messiahship, his kingly role for the heavenlies. He was going to be the king. He is the king of kings. He never stopped being the king of kings. And that's the role that he had, and he could not deny that. He wouldn't lie and say, no, I'm not a king. I am a king, but not of the realm you think of. So he says, I am a king. So Pilate's ignoring all of this because he doesn't even care about any of this. He just wants to know, what am I going to do with this man that I think is innocent? What do I do? I've got to ignore all the truth to make everybody happy, including myself, all for his own benefit. He's not caring about the innocent man in front of him. He's not caring about the truth. The truth in this narrative is standing right in front of him. It's Jesus Christ. He is the truth. This is what's going to be important about what Pilate's going to say at the end of this particular paragraph you say correctly that i am a king for this i have been born huh i took humanity on for this moment for this i took humanity on 
For this moment I was born, and for this I have come into the world. That's different. He's saying, I left heaven and came to the world. For this moment, to do what? To testify to the truth. He is the truth. He's saying, I'm testifying about myself, about my Father sending me to do this job. Listen to this. He says in a passage, I am the way. I am the truth, and I am the life. He also calls himself the light. It's all the. He's a definite article with truth. There's a definite article with life. He is the one. So the only truth that's in the room is him. Everything, no truth comes except from the Father. All truth comes out of knowing God and knowing the truths of Scripture because everything else comes after that. Pilate ignores all of it. For this reason I have been born, he says, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, and if the truth is the Messiah, which I think it is, I believe it is in this passage, then everyone that's in Christ, in the truth, hears my voice. They hear my voice. Pilate, you're obviously not of the truth because you don't hear my voice. You can't hear me. You can't speak. If you're here this morning and you go, what's this guy talking about? He's nuts up there talking about the truth. We all know in our postmodern world there is no truth. But that statement's a lie then. There is no truth. How do you know there's no truth? Well, because there just isn't any truth. Then the statement you made is not true. How ridiculous it is to think there is no truth. So Pilate is saying to him, you go back and forth, and Christ says, everyone that hears my voice, they hear the truth when they hear my voice. They come to the truth. They become part of the truth. They get in the body of Christ when they hear the truth. And when they hear my voice, they'll respond. They will hear me. If you're here this morning, you say, I've never heard the voice. Well, I'd love to introduce you to him. He'd love to introduce himself to you. I would just be a conduit that he would use to be able to share Christ with you. I have no power to get you in the kingdom that he's talking about. He's the only one with that power. He's the only one that's capable of doing that. And look at Pilate's response. You know that Christ was telling him, if you'll just believe in me, I'm right here in front of you. If you would just listen to the truth and hear it, your life could be changed. And he doesn't hear it. He does not hear it. What's his response? His response is very postmodern. It's very postmodern. And this wasn't the postmodern era, but it's a very postmodern thought. Pilate said to him, what is, the tr what is truth? You notice he doesn't use the definite article. He says, what is truth? This philosophical, all of a sudden he became Plato. You know, oh, what is truth? No, no, no. If he had said, what is the truth? I think dialogue would have continued. I think dialogue could have continued wasn't supposed to be we understand sovereignty but I wonder when I looked at this I went 
Oh, if he would have only said, what is the truth? Instead of what is truth? He just was scoffing at it. There's no such thing as truth. How can you say you came to testify to the truth? There is no such thing. The question is a question he's not even, he doesn't even want an answer to the question. That's evidenced by how that verse finishes up. All Pilate's interested in is his own self, his own glory, his only power. He wants to stay in that position that he's in. And he's afraid if he doesn't judge this correctly. The truth gets in the way. It just gets in the way. It's completely ignored. You ever been with somebody that tells you a story and the truth is far from it? Don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. You ever hear that before? That's what they say sometimes about preacher's illustrations. They're maybe not always the most truthful things. Uh, might be embellished a little bit. But, he's, but listen to this. So he says, what is the truth? And when he had said this, he didn't wait for an answer. As soon as he said it, he went out to the Jews and said to them, what's he say? What's his verdict? His verdict says he doesn't deserve death. His verdict says, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in him. But I'm going to hedge my bet. Because if I say that, there might be a riot because there's, now he's got a large group of Jewish people out there and they're a bit fired up because you got the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas getting them fired up. They're telling them, oh man, we're about to have a crucifixion here. We're about to eliminate this Jesus. You know what's amazing to me? It's the week before that, they were all on the sidelines as he came in on a donkey and they were praising him and worshiping him and they were so fickle. You ever run into a fickle believer? Oh, you might be one yourself. I certainly am. Oh, God is everything. I love him. Oh, there's a trouble in my life. Where's God at? No one's ever done that except me, I'm sure. That's what we do, though. So this kind of brings me to the third point of what I wanted to talk about. And this one is the one that I kind of just landed on. I'm like, oh, ignoring the truth leads them to act absurdly. When we ignore the truth, when you don't get the full truth, when you ignore the truth, your life is headed for chaos. Your life is headed for chaos. If you ignore the truth that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on a cross on your behalf, was buried and rose again, and that is the truth that will set you free, that's the one that sets you free. If you ignore that today, you're headed for a life of chaos. You're headed for an eternity with nothing but chaos. It's an absurd decision to say, I don't believe the truth. The truth today is not on trial. You are. Look how ignoring the truth, look at the absurdity of this. But you have a custom. I got a way of getting out of this. I don't have Pilate saying, no, I don't have to be the one that makes this decision. I found a way out. You have a custom. You have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Whether they're guilty or not guilty, I'll just release them if you want them. Do you wish then that I release for you one more dig from Pilate to the Jewish leadership, the king of the Jews? They weren't calling him a king of the Jews. But he sure lays it on thick right there, doesn't he? 
Shall I release to you the king of the Jews? Or do you want Barabbas? So they cried out again saying, not this man, not the king of the Jews, not the innocent one. Give us Barabbas, the known criminal, the career criminal. They said in Matthew that he was guilty of murder. He was guilty of robbery. He was guilty of insurrection. The very things that they're trying to say Christ did, Barabbas actually did and everyone knew it. And when they say, no, we don't want that king of the Jews guy. He's too good. Give us that wicked guy. Now, I would just like to use an illustration to show you how absurd this is. I'm going to stand Pastor Phil Howard right there. And I'm going to put Charlie Manson right next to him. And I'm going to ask you, which one do you want? Which one should go free? And if you said Charlie Manson, that's how absurd this was. This wasn't some guy that nobody knew about. Oh, no, they knew exactly who Barabbas was. But they chose Barabbas. Do you see the absurdity of ignoring the truth? That's absurd. We know that we would say, Phil Howard, give us Phil. Or would we? Would we? If we got worked up enough by the right people, we might say, give us Charlie Manson. Because we would be ignoring the truth. When you ignore the truth, it's guaranteed chaos. Guaranteed chaos. What do they say later, even after his death? He, I think he really was the king. He really was the king of kings. It's too late now. He got all worked up by the Sanhedrin. Well, they were pretty good at their job. They just ignored the truth. So, you're like, well, what's that got to do with us today? Well, how are you compromising the truth in your life? Is there any areas in your life that you're, instead of being committed to the truth, you're compromised by the truth? Huh. Any areas like that? How you doing on filing your taxes? Oh, yeah, no, no, that got real quiet in here, didn't it? Have you found a clever way out of having to just say, the truth says this, the truth says that? When truth is ignored, chaos ensues. When darkness is embraced, humanity refuses logic. It's just... There is no logic. You just want what you want. What do you want? What are you going after in your life right now that is ignoring what the truth would tell you to do? What do you want so bad that you're willing to ignore the truth? Because that's what they did. They wanted him dead so badly they just ignored the truth. They subverted the truth. They wouldn't even, they wouldn't even answer the questions they were being asked. In conclusion, are you compromising the truth or are you committed to the truth? Which of these two is true of your life today? 
Are you like the Jewish leaders who just hate somebody maybe in your life so much they did you wrong back 25 years ago and you've never been able to let go of it? That you would lie against them in court even. And don't think you're above this. I pray you're not, but you're not probably. Or are you like Pilate? You got your on the job there and you want that promotion or you like the promotion area you're in. Something's happened and if you let everybody know that that thing happened, you're probably gonna lose your position. What do you do with the truth then? Do you ignore it? Do you say, well, I'm just gonna hide that one. I'm not gonna tell everybody the reality. I'm just gonna hold back a little bit of information because I'll get to keep my job then. You know, not telling all of it is not telling the truth. You do know that. That's called deception. Or the most absurd thing, if they only would have known they were crucifying God, this was the Messiah, the one they'd been hearing about since they were born. This is all they this is their hope. And he's in front of them and they don't recognize it because they've ignored the truth. They let their emotions get carried away with them. If we are to be committed people, we must not compromise when it comes to the truth. The difference between right and wrong is not found in what you and I think. It doesn't matter what I think. Is it true or not? So what we think does not matter. The truth is found in who God is. It's found in who he is. So when we become followers of Jesus, when we belong to him, when we've accepted the truth, the Messiah, the true one, we embrace values that are contrary to the world's. Are your values contrary to the world's? Let me ask you, how many of you are willing to study this book? How many of you young men in the audience are saying, there's nothing more important than this book? God saved me. He put me in the family of God. I need to learn more about the book. How many of you are willing to give up a career, let's say, to be about Christ, about the truth? Oh, you can make more money doing other things, I understand that. But oh, you, the world is going to hell around you while you're making more money. What about this book? This book has the power to change lives. But it needs someone to step up. It needs someone to step up. If our founding senior pastor would have put as much time and education into a worldly view, he'd be a rich, rich man today. But he will tell you he's rich beyond anything the world could give. Because he said, Christ is enough. He's enough. The truth. In God's economy, his way of doing things, there is a reversal of appearances. We talked about it in our preaching team meeting this week, and Matt said, the pyramid is upside down. Usually you build a foundation and you get to the top. Christ is at the bottom of the pyramid holding up everything. So listen to what he, this is how God's economy works. His way of doing things, it's the reversal of appearance. The meek, what happens to the meek? They'll rule. They'll rule. Does that happen in your worldly view? No. If you're meek, you're going to get run over. But not in God's view. If you're meek, you'll rule. What about the least? What are the least in the kingdom? They're the greatest. It's a reverse. We go, the least? Why would you even bother with them? God says, because they're worthwhile. They'll all be great when they're, they're great. So the poor, 
are considered rich. The weak are made strong. The unlearned are wise. Everything's backwards. Oh, thank goodness I'm on the side where it's backwards. We live in a culture today that steadily embraces values that are in opposition to God. We live in a secular world that says that the here and now is more important than the eternal. Oh, they don't care about what's going to happen after life, but it's going to be a lot longer than their life. What you decide today, if you're here today and you go, I don't know this Jesus, but I'd sure like to know him. Oh, please don't leave here until you find out. Today is the day of salvation. Right now. I'm concerned about your eternal welfare. I am. I'll give up all the riches of the world to see one of you come to Christ. We live in a place where value is placed on the equality of all nature as opposed to man as a superior creation made in the image of God. Man is the only one made in the image of God. We live in a society that lives the lie that we are born good and innocent. You ever hear that? Well, I'm basically a good guy. Well, you just told me you're cheating on your wife. How can you be a good guy? I'm a good guy and basically innocent instead of the truth that all have sinned. All have sinned. We can welcome the truth of Jesus as king. Throughout his trial, Jesus was in total control. You never see him get frustrated. You never see him get angry. He's in control. The whole time, not once does he lose it. Not once does he lose track of what he's there and what he's there for. You know what he's there for? To fulfill the will of the Father that you might know him. Every step Jesus takes is deliberate because he is true to the king. He's true to the truth. Establishing a kingdom that will not only last a lifetime, but last an eternity. This king can be your master now, or he can be your master later. Oh, I wish you'd make him master now. You don't want to see him later. You don't want to see him after this life if you haven't made a commitment to him. But you know what? If you don't make a commitment to him, you're going to see him later. If you are here this morning and you have never made him king in your life, we would love to talk to you after and explain how you can meet him today. You can know him today. We would love to be able to talk to you about that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth the Messiah. Thank you that he came, took on the form of man, took on humanity, so he might die on a cross for our behalf. He died on a cross for you in the room today. He came, he left heaven, he considered his position in heaven nothing that he might come and take flesh on, that he might fulfill the law, die on a cross, be buried, be raised again and ascend up to his father where he's at the right hand now. Oh, I'd like for you to meet him today. If you already know him, how you doing on this truth stuff? How you doing on the truth stuff? Lord, help our people to live a life 
that lines up with the truth. If they don't understand what they're doing, I pray they'd stop and get in the book, that their minds and that their lives would be transformed by the renewing of the mind by getting in the book. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these people who patiently waited for me preaching over time. Amen.